welcome to the third season of Talking Spirituality, a Glastonbury Abbey podcast. If this is your first time listening, thanks for joining us. Each episode, we are joined by a special guest to discuss aspects of spirituality and belief where they intersect with the life of Glastonbury Abbey. I'm your host, Nick Phillips, and with me today is special guest Patrick Duff. Patrick is an artist, a singer and songwriter, poet and author. He's most famous for his time in 90s indie band Strange Love, followed by a solo musical career. But in recent years, he has been an artist in residence here at Abbey House, where we are recording today on the Glastonbury Abbey estate. From here, Patrick has composed and performed songs and sound meditations in small intimate gigs in the house, as well as writing his memoir, The Singer, and what will be its follow-up. The Singer details Patrick's early life, his first forays into music with strange love, and his struggles with drug and alcohol addiction. Sober since 1996, Patrick eventually split from the band and continued his musical journey from the mountains of Wales to unique experiences in Cape Town and beyond. A thread that runs throughout, amidst all the stories of rock and roll antics, is a current of mystical experiences that seem to surface at key points in his life. And it's that thread that I was interested to talk about today. Welcome, Patrick. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here. It's good to be here. <laughs> and thank you for writing your story. Thank you. Um, Thanks for reading it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. Um, for me, it was honest, harrowing, and at times uncomfortable reading. And that wasn't because I identified with it, but because I didn't. Um, so it felt quite alien to my own experiences growing up. I was very sheltered and and rebellious <laughs> um, but I recognised the artist underneath it all and it made me think of how my own path and my own life could have gone differently and mm. you made it possible to imagine being in your shoes mm-hmm. yeah okay thank you um, so it starts off with your your young life um, do you think your schooling shaped your direction so you talk about the teacher um, who humiliated you for your creative writing efforts. Yeah. Um, do you think if they had perhaps fostered your artistic talent and, and encouraged you more to experiment that you might have led down a different path? I mean, it's really hard to know whether that would have happened. All I know is that when I was young, and they, we used to have to write a story every weekend, yeah. and I just used to love doing that, I remember it, and... I remember my family were watching television in this tiny little room where they had the telly and I was next door in the kitchen writing these stories and I can remember the sound of the television that they were still watching it was because I knew you were going to ask me this question I was sort of thinking about it mm-hmm. and it was like very comforting to know that my family was still there because I could hear that they were watching the TV mm-hmm. but I was on my own in this other room and I didn't turn the lights on as it got darker because I would literally write for hours hmm. on a Friday night and the room would get darker and darker and then it was like the street lamp from outside was coming in so the page went all yellowy and I can remember just once you got into it your ha- it was almost like your hand was doing it, it was almost like you were watching your hand mm. and then I remember 
really clearly sort of seeing the top of my own head <laughs> as I wrote in these moments. I mean, I don't really know what's going on. I really don't, mm. honestly. I don't have a context to it or I can't... I'm not like some people who can tell you about their experience and then put it into some sort of like larger picture. I, I'm not like that. But I just know what happened. Mm. And I know that I saw the top of my own head and I saw myself writing on the kitchen table and it was just a very strange experience. And because I was, I'm talking about eight, nine, ten, yeah. around about that age, you, I don't know, I, def, I never thought anything about it. You really. didn't question it, I suppose. I didn't question yeah. it. I just, I didn't find it scary or exhilarating or anything. I just, it just went in there mm. and I remembered it when I was writing my memoir. Oh my goodness me. Yeah. Like something was going on when I was younger I didn't tell my mum and dad or mm. say to them, Mum, I saw the top of my own head, or it never even occurred to me to do that or say that to anyone. Perhaps if I had said, Mum, I've seen the top of my own head when I was writing, <laughs> I don't know, they might have, I don't know what they would have done actually. I mean, I don't know what they would have said. But um, yeah, I, I, I fantasised that maybe, you know, I, I could have said it to somebody like a teacher and they said, ah, we've had people like you before. Mm. You're one of those people who can see the top of their own head. With them. <laughs> Come with us. You're going to be educated in a completely different way than everybody else. Everything's going to be okay. You know? I fantasised about that. Yeah. But that's not what that's happened. That's not how school you know, I, That's yeah. not how it was. No. So I just had to go in the same as everybody else. And in, in many ways, I'm sure I am the same as anyone else. And I'm sure that most people probably have had sort of experiences when they're growing up or when they're younger that they can't really explain to themselves, mm. you know, because our imaginations are very yeah. strong then, you know. And the fact that you remember it is quite impressive as well because I think a lot of these things kind of, we tend to forget them or mm. we allow them to... I mean, I did forget it in yeah. a way, but then I remembered it when I was piecing back my own yeah. life. I mean, once I got, obviously we won't go into this yet, but once I got, once I stopped taking drugs and mm. drinking alcohol on a daily basis, which I did for 10 years. Once I stopped doing that, I had to do a lot of reflecting mm. and I had to sort of put myself back together in some way. Mm. And, and so in that period of reflection, uh, when I was wandering about in a forest, I think we talked <laughs> about that, that all this stuff started to come up. It was all, yeah. it was all sort of like, um, it had all been recorded by my memory, and it was all in a pristine all, state. Uh, yeah. I mean, really incredible, actually, what we're capable of as humans. Yeah. You know, all these memories were there. Something within me accessing them. Something within me knew yeah. that this is important because there's loads of stuff about my childhood I've definitely forgotten, but I remembered mm. that. You know, I remembered that. Mm. So yeah, something was happening <laughs> even back then. Um, so you, you had a Catholic upbringing, and you later yeah. rejected that, and you were an atheist as a young man. Mm. Um, I mean, it's quite common rock musicians who've been through a similar thing, being brought up Catholic and then walking away from it. They um, seem to quite often carry feelings of guilt and anger into their music. Um, one track that stands out in my mind is um, Forgiven by Alanis Morissette on her Jagged Little Pill album. Um, did you channel any of those kind of feelings into your writing or was it sort of a cold break? I would say, like, if I look back on it now, I think... I can see it there, but I didn't do it consciously. Mm. The way that I wrote was just instinctive in a way. Because right. I think I didn't, you know, school did not work for me, basically. Yeah. So I didn't, 
I wasn't schooled in the art of writing in any way whatsoever by my school mm -hmm. because I just wasn't listening and I don't even know if it was available there or not but I just turned away from all that so my writing was just completely impulsive really <laughs> <laughs> and it would just come out it would just come out really so and I didn't reflect on it and once I once it felt it sounded right to me yeah. then I just went with it and I didn't reflect too much on it back on things I mean I do now but back mm. then no but I can see for sure I mean that I was brought up I was schooled by nuns from the age of three mm -hmm. I was schooled by Christian brothers I was surrounded by all that imagery yeah. I received the blessed sacrament at least once a week probably more for the first 18 years of my life I mean that would have had a massive effect course, on me yeah. you know and um, I can I can see it in my lyrics but um, but I wasn't trying to do that mm. you know I, I've, I've listened to Desert Island Discs loads of time mm. and things like that there's a lot of you know, people like to hear about other people's lives and mm -hmm. piece them together in these narratives. Really solid, yeah. I find it fascinating to listen yeah. to other people. And, and I, I notice with people, you know, a lot of um, people who become very successful, they have these moments in their lives when they know they're going to be a songwriter and they know that they're going to be a writer and they know that whatever anybody says, I'm like, I'm going to be an actor or whatever, you know. And they talk about that moment, but it wasn't really like that for me. I just didn't have that. Mm. You know, somebody else said to me, you're going to be the singer in our band. And I sort of said, okay. It was a bit more like that for me. Yeah. I, I, so, I mean, I found I could do it and they obviously spotted something in me. But I wasn't thinking, here's my chance to have a go at the Catholic Church, you know, mm. even though I probably was, <laughs> without even knowing it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we've already mentioned one of these kind of strange mystical experiences that you didn't even realise was... Uh, at the time um, but you mentioned more of them in the book whether mm. it's like strange coincidences or out-of-body experiences or visions or dreams mm. um, experiences living in haunted flats <laughs> you describe yeah um, would you say these happen at sort of crossroad moments um, when things were kind of coming mm. to a head as sort of yeah, I, I, think, I mean, I think with the haunted things, that's mm. different from a mystical experience. Mm. I don't think those are the same thing. Okay. Although, perhaps you can be yeah, sensitive. Supernatural. You can be sensitised yeah. to being more likely to having that happen to you, perhaps. But the mystical experiences that I've had are different from the haunted experiences, mm. I think. And the mystical experiences, I think, probably did happen at times. In the beginning, mm. they happened at times when I was disintegrating. Mm. Um, and Leonard Cohen, there's, I think it's a line, I don't think he actually wrote it, I think he ripped it off somebody else, but he's got it, it's a line in one of his songs that says everything's got a crack in it, and that's how the light gets. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so when you're sort of falling apart, when your ego or whatever it is, your personality mm. is, is disintegrating because, you know, you're addicted to something, for, in my case, mm. then I think you, you, you know, they're, they, they, those cracks allow light to come in. But also, I, I mean, like, you know, the, the, the major mystical experience that I had when I was in Strange Love, I actually invoked it myself because I went into, you know, even though I was an atheist, mm -hmm. I was in such a dreadful state one day in Strasbourg where we were on, mm -hmm. um, in, with the band we were touring, I was in such a mess. And um, we parked up in this um, 
area of the town that was really one down and I'd got off the bus, I'd gone looking for drink. It was very early in the morning. There were loads of um, beggars in this area. It was, it was you know, I, I mean, I was in a pretty paranoid state as well, but it felt like they were all coming out. I got lost and they were all coming around me and they were trying to get money off me. And there was a guy I remember with a, on a, on a sort of board with wheels on it with his legs chopped off, you know, just begging. It was, it was like Dante's Inferno, that's what mm. it felt like to me. And I just saw this church door open and it was just something in me said there's some kind of safety in that place. I hadn't walked into a church for years and years. Something left over from my childhood was in there because there were times in my childhood that were really beautiful to do with the church actually. Mm. And I went in there um, and I remember this really clearly because I just remember I had literally had not been into a church for five or six years probably and it you know when you go into a church there's that sort of gaping atmosphere of stone it just felt so peaceful and calm and cool because mm. it was quite hot outside mm. even though it was early in the morning it was still and that sort of like I could feel the sweat against my um, from trying to get away from these people like on my face and feel my heart suddenly like my beating heart in comparison to this big stone building I could really feel that and I couldn't cope with that so I went through to this side chapel that seemed a bit a bit like we've come into another room because mm. the ceilings aren't so big for a better so but it was like yeah I came into a smaller place I wanted to get out of this and there was this and the sun was coming through the window and there was a pic there was Mary in um in the window mm -hmm. with the sun behind her and it was the blue of her dress, that, that colour blue that I remembered from my childhood. Yeah. And I went, I got down, I threw myself down on my knees and shouted, help me, like at the top of my voice. There was no one else in the church, but if there had been, I probably would have done it anyway. <laughs> I don't know. And, and I had a mystical experience after that. So I, that happened as a result of, yeah, me cracking up, but it has also happened as a result of me saying help. Mm. When... I didn't even believe in it. Yeah. You know, so some other impulse, whether it was an impulse left over from my childhood, mm -hmm. conditioning, was mm -hmm. it conditioning that got me down on my knees? Or was it something deeper than that? I don't really know. I don't really know what, what made me shout help to a stained glass window of Mary. Mm. You know, not a lot of rock stars do that. They get in mm. trouble, but they don't all scream out to stained glass windows <laughs> no, it's not, right? but I did and, and, and I had an, and an answer came you know. um, it, it, when I was reading it kind of reminded me of medieval Christian mystics in crisis um, quite tortured and they, you know, they had visions following sickness you know. mm. um, and I think at your gig you mentioned that you'd be reading about Christian mm. mystics so yeah. like um, Julian Norwich mm. Marjorie Kemp Teresa Avila yeah. these all Familiar. They're all, they're yeah. all familiar to me, yeah. yeah. And I've I've read, I've got books by them all that I look through, and and there's a sort of music coming from those people. Okay. I, I sense some. Um, you know, I you we read all sorts of words. We're surrounded mm. by words in society. You know, all everywhere you look, there's loads of words in here. Look, they are there. They are like pinned up on notice boards mm. here. We're just surrounded by them, mm. aren't they? And so. I think you have to shut yourself off to them for some in some way to even to not go insane. <laughs> but 
um, the words of these Christian mystics coming off the page to me, what I get, this is now that I'm sober, of course, and I've got more, I wouldn't have been able to tell this when I was drinking, or on drugs, I don't think. But um, to me, something comes through those words more than just the words themselves. There's a communication going on between that person that they sat down, they're coming from a very deep place, and they're writing these words down. Mm. And there's something in the words that's like a transmission as well that I can mm. actually feel while I'm reading them. And that is, and I don't get that when I read like, I don't know, I was gonna say, I don't, Radiohead, I don't know what I'm saying, but Radiohead's <laughs> website, do you know what I mean? Like I'm, which I could be interested in reading, mm -hmm. and I might see that they're doing this, and they might have even written something up there on it, but I'm not getting the same like music that it was, it was written in, you think? That I, that I, yeah, there's something about the mystics, like there's something that goes along with their words that I feel like I can feel. Uh, maybe it's in the way they wrote, mm. the way they wrote because they were writing from this deep place. Mm. A lot of them were, you know, in isolation in very yeah. small, focused conditions. Yeah, yeah, and it sort of hits you. Some some words hit you in the brain, and some words hit you in the heart, and some words hit you in a place you can't really even describe or even know about, but you can experience it, and mm. that's what I get from them, from the. Um, mystics and living in the world that we're living in I find it so um, refreshing to just be there with them I can't read it for hours and hours mm -hmm. it's just I can only take in I'm only able to take in short bursts of it really but it's been um, well it's been kind of part of my saving grace really mm -hmm. that kind of thing I'm really grateful to those people that they took the time to try and well, not try, they took the time to express something very precious, and I think they did it really well. And I'm able to partake of that, so hmm. cheers, John and a cross. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> um, your, your first book doesn't cover the time you've spent here in Glastonbury, um, so I don't know whether you've experienced anything strange whilst you've been here. I feel like a lot of people have, yeah. And so it's, um, yeah, I mean, I. Because uh, you sent me through the questions, I, I, I mean, there's, I can think there's lots, but I can think of two I could tell you about. Mm -hmm. I came here when I was about nineteen. It's the first time I ever came here with my friend. He was called James Goodland. He he was a musician. He was really talented, and we were trying to get a band together. But at that point, I was too untogether to do it. But he was trying to get me to be in a band with him. And he was also trying to sort of drag me out of pubs and show me other things turn my attention away from all that. And he drove me down to Glastonbury once about four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and we climbed a tour. That was the first time I'd ever heard or knew anything about Glastonbury. Okay. We climbed a tour, we got about halfway up, and there was, I don't know, like 50 yards away, there was a figure of light, like before, it's like a, a figure of a man. But you know like the Ready Break advert, when they had the sort of, there was a sort of, red glow around a person like a oh, lion yeah. like a li <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. like that but it was white and it was about 50 yards away and we we both stood halfway at the tour and looked at it it was it was down on um in a field hmm. and there it was and it was just it uh, like when you go really fast with a sparkler and you can feel those yeah. trails but it was much thicker than that and it was there stood a figure of a man you know wow. in the field and 
he was going, wow. And we both stood there. I mean, it was, but we both saw it. Yeah. And he wanted to go towards it. And I said, no way I'm going anywhere. <laughs> I was really scared. I was really, he wasn't scared, but I was. I didn't want to go towards him. And um, I don't know what that was. And I spoke to, you know, I spoke to him recently. I phoned him up like about five years ago to ask him, do you remember that? And he did. Yeah. He did remember it. And he works for a bank now. I mean, this guy's a very rational. Yeah. He's not, not that I'm making any aspersions, casting any aspersions on anybody else, but he's just a really straight-laced guy. Yeah. He, that's the way he's went. He had children. He's sort of like um, decided to work for a bank. He's gone right up to the top at Lloyd's somewhere. He remembers it. And um, he says, yeah, I've told my children about that. I told my wife. It was an important moment for him. He didn't remember that I'd said, no way are we going towards it. I, I've, I stopped him from sort of further <laughs> investigation. And the other thing that happened that was quite strange was I came, after Strange Love split up, um, that was a difficult time for me because I'd started my musical life out as a busker mm. and just down in the bear pit they call it in Bristol I don't <laughs> know if you know it's a big city centre roundabout I used to play mm, yeah. there in the underpasses and um, you know so in a basically I was just nobody I was just nobody stood there in a like dressed in rags playing my acoustic my dad's guitar like making up songs on the spot and people throwing money in, you know. And I had no, I did not care in any way whatsoever back then that I was nobody. In fact, it was a sort of celebration to me that I was, I kind of thought it was cool to be a busker. I thought it was cool to be not outside the norm, you know. There was a sort of pride almost in me for doing it. Anyway, that was what got me into Stranger. But I came out of Strange Love, where we'd had this success. And I basically, when, when, when the last of the money ran out, I mean, it paid for my life for 10 years, that band. And then it ended. And there was no more, you know, I'd, from my, all through my formative years, 20s and all those years, there was just money coming into my account every month from my manager. I never thought twice about it. And then one day it just stopped. So I just didn't know what to do. So I went and signed on the dole, which is what I was doing before that had all started, you know. So I signed on the dole and I went back to being nobody in a way again. Now, when I was nobody before Strange Love, I didn't care about it. But after I'd been somebody, in inverted commas, and I went back to being nobody again, that was really, really tough. Mm. Because I wanted to get back to being somebody because I didn't know how to live without mm. that. That was a really hard time for me. You know, not as hard as a lot of what other people have got to go to, I know. But for me, that was a difficult time. So I used to get my gyro and I would come, I would come to Glastonbury because I found solace here. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knew who I was here, whereas in Bristol, people knew me. Mm -hmm. And I would come to the Abbey and I would, go to, I would walk up the tour. And once I was sat in the Abbey grounds on a bench, it's one of the benches that's you know the little hedge door where we go through yeah. to get there's benches up there and I sort of sat on one of those benches and it was in the spring morning and um, it was just I'd got here I was sat on the bench I closed my eyes and that the sun was shining that pink colour you get when you close your eyes on a sunny day 
and you can see the inside of your head and it's all pink, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I was getting that pink colour and it was, I could hear the birds, it was really nice. It's just like, you know, that kind of thing. And then a young woman came and sat next to me on the bench. I didn't open my eyes, but I could just feel like people have got different presences, haven't they? Mm. You can feel, I, I mean, I was convinced a young woman had come and sat next to me on the other side of the bench. And I thought, that's a bit weird, you know, it's a bit weird coming to sit with someone on a bench when their eyes are closed, but I just let it go. Mm. Anyway, she continued to, to sit there. And eventually I kind of opened my eyes and there was nobody there. It was just a presence. Mm. I mean, it was, and the presence was still there when I opened my eyes and there was nobody actually sat there. And I was, it was shocking because mm. I was absolutely convinced that a human being was sat on the other end of that bench. They weren't. So it was a spirit or something, I don't know, but it was there. And, um, Once, once I realised that it wasn't a person, all the sort of like worry what left me, you know, of being near a stranger, you know, mm. if you know what I'm trying to say, like you'd come and sat next to me on a bit, all that disappeared and it was just a, a very exhilarating um, experience. Mm. Yeah, so that's the other strange thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, so now that you, you know you spend a lot more time here, what, what do you um, find special about the Abbey Grounds? What do you value about it? I think that, um, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to give precise language about mm-hmm. this because I'm not really interested in finding the precise language. That's okay. But, but, I, but, I, can, but I can tell you what I get from it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I believe that some places in the world, there's a kind of vitality coming out of the earth. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I could describe it. And in some places that vitality seems to be increased. You know, I mean, when I came to Glastonbury, I, I, was, I, I remember saying to somebody, I came here when I was, you know, just after that first time with my friend, mm-hmm. and we came into the town and I said to my friend, I feel like I'm stoned just being here. I remember <laughs> saying that to him, like I didn't have any other context trying to explain mm. but I was getting something from being here just this place has this kind of vitality to it that you you know you don't get in a car park that in one of those cinemas that's been set up on the outskirts of a town do you know mm-hmm. I mean there's a different vibe there yeah. and it's not as intense you know so I believe that Glastonbury has a sort of like vitality coming out of it that's why there's an abbey here I think probably mm like people were attracted to build sacred places where there was already something going on. Yeah. But what, what Glastonbury Abbey means to me is, so, so Glastonbury already has this vitality coming up from the earth, and then they built an abbey here, and then monks for hundreds of years kind of um, said the Benedictine rite, it was written in the fourth century by St. Benedict, and they chanted the Psalms day after day after day after day for hundreds and hundreds of years. and. In, in my imagination and in my experience, the way I experience it, they sort of refined that energy that's mm. coming up from the earth underneath the abbey and they changed it into something else, like they refined it somehow mm. by those prayers and that kind of commitment over centuries. Yeah. And that that lingers and it's still here. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. whatever they did, you know, after the Reformation came and they were all, and it stopped, mm. you know, but it's not just the stones that are out there. 
it's not just a pile of stones. There's something there. There's an atmosphere there. That's why some people come here, I think, to try and partake yeah. of that and experience. And I experienced that, and I, that's what I love about it, the, 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 the natural vitality of the land here and the way that that vitality has been refined by those monks. So it's a kind of like, yeah, a medieval Christian mm. Yeah, thing. I think you're definitely not alone in that. A lot of people have that sense that the, the centuries of prayer and that have created you know, an atmosphere that's mm. maintained whatever energy or whatever you want to call it presence is mm. here. So yeah, I think it's definitely a, something, a, a common feeling that people say yeah. they have here. And then to sort of be able to have the chance to respond to that yeah. musically and yeah, to put on these events, that's been just, you know, when I was sitting on that bench on the doll, the stranger would split up and I felt that presence come and sit next to me. Never in my wildest imagination would I have believed that I'd be the artist in residence that Abby has mm. that was just in that moment yeah. behind me. You know, I would never, ever, ever have thought that, that would have happened to me, but it did happen, you know. That I get a chance to sort of like make music that um, points towards that feeling, you know. So <laughs> just so, yeah. I feel very blessed and lucky Yes. for that to have happened, yeah, you know. Of course. Yeah. Um, after you came out of recovery, you, you said you started spending more time sort of communing with nature mm. and you were looking for signs in the natural world. But you'd quite often come upon um, things of Christian significance quite unexpectedly. Um, like there's a, there's a point where I think you come across a village called Bethlehem yeah. in Wales. And um, do you, did you find yourself then uh, thinking about your Catholic up? bringing and revisiting it or was it uh it that did happen but it wasn't around that period mm. well that period was more like i when i think of that that period of um communing with nature because i'd done all my socializing and everybody i knew was basically either dead or not feeling very well if you know what i mean <laughs> like everyone i knew mm. was rock and roll mm. like just get out of your head and that's what it's all about don't get a job don't join in just just get out of this mm. you know the world's a sinking ship we need to jump overboard you know we need to get off out of this place and we need to just get off our heads you know mm. and that was everyone that i knew so when i got sober i, I cut myself off from everybody i knew and i was on my own and I didn't really know how to interface with straight people either, if you know what I mean. Mm. Like, the kind of normal people. Yeah. I felt estranged from that. I felt estranged from the people I knew and had always loved and been with. And I felt estranged from the newer type of people who I didn't know so well, who seemed... Who were all, who were all getting on with their lives, you know, who were all going down this motorway and, like, collecting all the things you need to get, like their houses and their... Trying to make themselves safe. And I can understand that. We've all got to try and make ourselves safe in this world. It's scary, you know. But anyway, I felt estranged from both. Mm. Not that there's sides, but you get the picture I'm trying to say. So you so I, found, I found myself just, I just found myself in forests and stuff mm. where I felt peace of mind. And I needed to just start, and I start, and, and the forest started talking to me. There's no doubt about it. Mm. And then I started to, well, because I, I, I'd always lived around concrete. I was brought up in concrete, around concrete and... 
I started to notice that this forest changed every day. Mm. Like the feeling in it was totally different every day, subtly. And it was just singing a different song every day, the forest, in a way that the city streets weren't. And I developed this naturally just by going every day and spending hours in there. I, this sensitivity started mm. to emerge where I could sense that difference and how much an effect that was having on me. So I was changing alongside it yeah. each day. And then there were certain places in this forest where, which became things that happened to me there. I'd had breakthroughs or I'd had insights. So these places took on a kind of sacred nature to me. I started to bring my guitar there to these different places, start to play music, and I started to do gigs. But I did gigs where nobody came. There was nothing to be nervous about, where the, the sort of wind or the rain or the things that were coming on, the birds, were all part of the gig. And, I, and it really revolutionised my um, relationship to music, you know. Yeah, so that was an important part of my life. That lasted for a few years, mm. and then I started to just dig people again. Mm. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd built up enough of a new persona to be able to interface with the world again. Yeah, yeah. And I started to see the beauty in people again, instead of being freaked out by them. So, like, along with this kind of heightened awareness that you kind of developed, you sort of um, started following your instincts more, do you reckon? Sort of following your nose. I mean, I always followed my nose because mm. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, I've always followed my nose. And it's led me into some good things. And it's led me into a lot of trouble as well, you know. I sort of feel, I sometimes see like people saying, just follow your heart, you know. Follow your heart and everything's mm. going to be all right. I mean, I'm somebody who actually has followed their heart, you know. I'm not somebody who's just putting that up on Facebook because it sounds like something to say. Mm. I actually did follow yeah. my heart. And it's been great, and it's also been really, really difficult as well, you know. It's led me up some, you know, it's deceived me almost. My heart's deceived me at times, you know, I'd say. Or I haven't been able to read it as well as I thought I had. So, you know, following your heart's great, but it's not all it's cracked up to be, I'd say. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you talk about instances where you have this kind of strong inner voice guiding mm. you somewhere to mm. someone um, so you there's a, a part where you talk about the WOMAD festival yeah, yeah, yeah. and you ended up discovering this um, South African yeah, musician yeah. Mandacini and um, who you later worked with um, some people would maybe describe it as like listening to your highest self mm. or being guided by your guardian angel or a mm. higher power would you ascribe it to anything uh. particular it's hard to know, you know. I think just the story itself speaks for itself. Yeah. And, and, like, I don't know what it actually, actually is. Do you feel like you don't but, need to, you know, to know? Uh, you don't need to figure it out? Not really, no. I mean, like, like, you know, I've just said, like, sometimes my heart's deceived me. But there's been some moments, like, I, I had a premonition to go through this door in the mm. side of a sports centre in Rivermead where we were at festival. I mean, it was so strong. And that led me to go to live in South Africa and work with Madassini, which mm. completely changed my life. There are moments where, you know, and I, that wasn't a choice. That wasn't like, I wasn't choosing to follow my heart in that moment. I was just being propelled. You know, that was something much more powerful than that. That was an absolute, you're going through that door, sunshine sort of thing, <laughs> you know what I mean? There was no doubt about mm. it. 
and 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 nobody who would who could experience something like that would ever be able to not do it. I would say mm. there's so just you, sometimes in your life when you just know what's right. Do you think you? that's an external thing then that propelled you? I don't know what it is. No, no I don't know. I, I just know what happened as a result of me yeah. going through that door. You know what happened as a result of me going mm. through that door changed my whole life. Mm. I mean, you know, you can suppose you can sit and speculate on it and you know, meditate on it. And I mean, I believe in as God. As much as you, or as I little be- as you want. I believe in God. Mm. I believe in God. Yeah, I do. My, my, what I understand that word to be, I mm. believe in God. I believe, yeah, I believe, I believe they're in some kind of guiding hand. Mm. That sometimes, uh, Carl Jung said something quite good about it. At the end of his life, he looked back on his life and he said, Sometimes, when you look back on his life, there was a guiding hand that seemed so clear and obvious that it was undoubted, and sometimes there didn't, you know? That's what he said about his life. There were these moments when there was a guiding hand, there was moments when he felt there wasn't. I quite like that, because I, I can concur with that in a way. There were times in my life where I felt like I was being really guided. There's sometimes I felt like lost and alone in the world, you know, and there's... I, I, I can still like, um, I can still appeal to that guiding hand. I know it's real. I know it's there, but it doesn't always yeah. like hold my hand. Having freedom to. I mean, John yeah. the Cross talked about it as the dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. and he talked about that. He talked about that being abandoned by God as a really, really important part of mm-hmm. actually, um, uh, you know his own enlightenment mm-hmm. that there isn't another way through that you have to be abandoned at some point to be able to get through to the yeah. next le- level on the video game or whatever do you know what I mean <laughs> and I, I quite like that as well yeah I quite like that yeah I like that because it marries up with my own experiences yeah yeah mm. towards the end of the book you talk about the spirit of music and you say mu- music is a spirit that gets passed down through the mm. generations and you talk about the spirit of silence and how the silence is full and pregnant with potential. Um, you did a series of meditations here last year, and that was called Song of the Silence. Um, can you explain a bit more about what went into those? Yeah, I mean, that was... When, when I was um, here as artist in residence, mm-hmm. and I was putting on some events, and... So I had readings, I mean, I had, I had a night where it was Meister Eckhart, readings from him, mm-hmm. where I read Meister Eckhart, and, I, and like I was explaining earlier, I would, just, I would read Meister Eckhart, and then I would wait for the music to start, and then I would I'd underline that bit that felt like it was really talking to me. And, then, and I'd get some of those, I would, I would extract those things from his writing, and then I would juggle around with them and put them in some sort of order. Mm-hmm. And then I would live with the feeling of that, and also combine that with the feeling of wandering around the abbey, going to the mm-hmm. Lady Chapel, saying the rosary in there, which I went and did, mm-hmm. and and just like everything we talked about, that refined energy and and, that. and then I would just go and when I when I felt the moment was right, or sometimes even I just as a discipline at ten o'clock I'm going to go to my, I, I my dad had bought me this keyboard when he sold his house. In about 2000, he brought me this keyboard, which I've never used before, and I just knew I'm going to use that keyboard 
for this. Hmm. And I would just find when I was in when I was in that state, or I would read those words, or I, I would just let my fingers fall across the keyboard until something came that felt like it was corresponding to what I was feeling about, you know, very minimal mm -hmm. music, basically. Speaking your way through it. Yeah. yeah. And then once, and then I just started putting these, they were one-offs, I started putting mm -hmm. the words together, these pieces of music, and, um, and then presenting them to people, mm -hmm. you know. Very unique experience. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And also, like, really great as an artist because, you know, I've done gigs since I was 20, 19, 20 years of age, you know, and most of the gigs that I've done, the, the audience come along, and I've done this myself as an audience member, and I go to the event, and there's the artist on the stage, and I'm looking at the artist, and I'm having a, mm. they're playing music, and I'm listening to that music, but also I'm having a reverie about that person, you know, that particular individual, and you know they're singing this song, and I can feel what they feel like as a person, and I'm listening to the words, and I'm just getting, and I'm focused on that person, you know, and on the lights, and on the whole atmosphere of the stage, mm. and the other musicians who were playing, and I'm just having a reverie about the whole thing. And, and um, these events that I do in Abbey House aren't like that, you know, and I, I explain to people, this is not what this is, you yeah. know. This is, t this is a sound meditation, and you close your eyes, and you go in, and you, you, you know, you, you, you let this music wash through you, and you have your own experience. This isn't about me. Mm -hmm. This is about it's not you. Performance. This is more it's about you. Me. You know, it's not about you thinking about me. It's about what does this music, what imagery does it bring up within mm -hmm. you, or what feelings, or what? And that's really um, exciting as an artist to kind of be put off the hook, if you know what I mean. Obviously, I know. I'm still having to carry the thing. Mm -hmm, I'm still having mm -hmm. to get it right. I'm still kind of like nervous yeah. in a way. I might be not like I'm in this transcendental state. I'm still fighting, but I'm trying to provide people with something like an individual experience for themselves. So they sit on chairs, get as comfortable as them. Some people like to go on the floor and lie down and they close their eyes and it washes over them. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's very, you know, if you've listened to, you know, a drone on a keyboard for 30 minutes, right? And then you read a passage of Meister Eckhart after mm. you've listened to a drone for 30 minutes. The, 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 what's coming out of those words is really different mm. than I, if I went into that room and said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. and now I'm just going to start this off with a reading about Meister Eckhart. This is what he said yeah, when he was yeah. living in Hanover in 1356, blah, 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 blah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. There's the same words, but like, it's a completely different thing, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, so that's what those events are about. <laughs> They're about, like, help, yeah, helping those words come alive, in a way. Yeah, so this year you've done a series <laughs> um, of performances that around the major Marian feast days. Mm. Um, so we've had the Annunciation, the Visitation, uh, there's the Assumption, and uh, the Nativity will be mm. the last one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in, in your book you talk about being enamoured with the image of Virgin Mary and mm -hmm. from, from an early age. Um, do, you, do you feel like um, this is like a connection that you've gone back to with, yeah. with this series? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I definitely have. I definitely have. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a story in the book I won't go on too long, but I mean, it, it just... When I was writing the book, it came back... When I, now that I've realised all the things that have happened to me in my life, like, I... 
the, a, a, a bloke turned up on the day that I was born, mm. like a, a bloke that my parents sort of felt was a rather eccentric man who they didn't know very well <laughs> kind of thing. They, they yeah. didn't dislike him or anything, but he turned up at the hospital with a brown paper package, brown paper package, and he insisted that he wanted to give it to my mother and father as a gift for the new baby. Mm. Yeah. And um, uh, they were like, my mum had been in labour for about 28 hours or something, you know. <laughs> So anyway, he insisted. They went down. They got this. It was it was a it was a portrait of the Virgin Mary, and um, by a Dutch artist called Gerard, and that was given to me on the day. Yeah. You know, okay. So I and that that portrait was above my parents' bed throughout my childhood. I saw it really many 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 times. <laughs> you know. They eventually gave it to me. It's now above my bed. You know. Um, as I'd already said, you know, in a time of desperation. I screamed out to mm. Mary. Mm. Uh, my grandmother was called Mary. She was also called Mary, and she received a uh, a medal from the Pope. She, I mean, my, my my grandmother Mary gave her entire life to the Catholic Church. She, she was a totally selfless person. I remember her taking me as a child um, to nunneries, and she would speak to nuns who were behind grills. Do you know what I mean? They were speaking through mm-hmm. the grill. They were they were cloistered nuns. She was having relationships with these people, you know. She was granted a medal by the Pope in 1972, the Bene which was given to mostly given to priests and bishops and people. Mm. Occasionally, this medal was given to the laity, as they call them. Mm. My grandmother received that medal, you know. She had a she had a massive devotion to Our Lady, you know. So. And actually, there's a shrine. There's a Catholic shrine to Our Lady mm-hmm. in, in in Glastonbury, mm-hmm. Saint Mary's Catholic Church. It's a shrine, yeah. recognised by the Church to Our Lady, Our Lady of Glastonbury. They have a mm-hmm. beautiful statue. I mean, I get up every morning at half past five. I go there. I open the church up. I sit there from half past six till nine o'clock every single morning, apart from Sundays. And I sit in front of that statue, and there's a presence in that church that I don't want to start the day without now. Mm-hmm. Now, I never, ever, ever, ever thought that would happen to me, <laughs> I tell you, but I'm drawn there. Yeah. You know, something, and, and, and my roots are in there as well. I, you know, I, I tore myself away from my own roots as a child. Yeah. I did, as a, I mean, and it was a child, even though I was a teenager, I was still. And, and I now feel completely comfortable to sit in that church. It's very much like the Church of the Sacred Heart, which I was brought it, like the, I think the architecture and everything it was it was built about the same time, mm-hmm. and I just feel completely comfortable to sit in there, and it's just a transmission of the most innocent and pure kind. That's what I get from it. You know, I know the church has had all sorts of problems. You know, of course I understand that, but what I get there from sitting there is this just complete sense of purity mm. that washes through me and I need that I need that to live in this world I need to commune with that I don't know how long that will last it's been going on for four or five years that has you know now it's quite a long time I guess you know that it's there though when you need it and and, and I want that there's no you know I get exhausted from from the commitment of being there but there's nothing in me, however exhausted I am in the morning, nothing is going to stop me from getting there because I need it, you know. So 
that is um, that's a kind of coming home, you know, and it's it's uh, joyful for me, really joyful. Yeah, and so I put that down to Mary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I attended the the performance that you, you based on the visitation. Yeah, um, which is the one that revolves around pregnant Mary visiting her cousin Elizabeth, mm. who's also miraculously pregnant with John the Baptist. Mm. So I just wanted to sort of tell you a bit about what I got from that. I'd love to hear that, yeah. Um, I, found, I found myself thinking about how sound adds a dimension that we don't often experience here at the Abbey because, you know, there's, you know, it's mm. ruins. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, we don't have the, the singing still mm. happening and everything. Um, sacred sound especially, you know, it helps to stimulate the imagination, mm. I think. Definitely. Um, and I'd love if we could do more things here with the dimension of sound, mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know, recordings or, yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, the guided meditation and the part, there's a part where it felt like you're hearing the sounds of Mary's journey through the land yeah. um, and it kind of helped put you in the setting of two, 2000 years ago mm. um, and it makes you appreciate whether or not that you believe the stories that that was a real time and a place yeah, yeah, that yeah. existed and yeah, that yeah. people were living in those yeah, conditions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and the, uh, the Marian song that you did made, made, made me suddenly think not about the, the monks' experience here, but the pilgrims that would have come here into that atmosphere, um, just ordinary, everyday people, mm. and how they must have been struck by the great emotion of the sound mm. that they're suddenly experiencing. They wouldn't get that in their no. normal everyday lives mm. you know, in the medieval period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you can understand how in awe they would have been of just this wall of sound. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, so and then you, you use a singing bowl as well, and that was a very intense experience when it's it's close close to you it's, it's, it felt like uh, it felt like having your head inside the bowl or even your whole body was inside mm. the bowl and um, mm. so it was kind of like a womb-like experience yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which kind of fit with the theme so <laughs> yeah. you know Brilliant. um you're trying to interpret the sounds outside of that yes yeah. that you know circling I totally between. understand what you're saying yeah. I do I really do yeah yeah so that, that's what I got from that's that. amazing I'm so glad to hear that <laughs> yeah really really and I mean I was you know that's another miracle almost in a way I was given that that bowl is is made out mm. of gold and um quartz mm. like mixed together at yeah 3000 degrees centigrade or something <laughs> you know in um I was given this bowl by these two guys from America they just gave it to me on a whim. It's worth it's worth thousands of pounds, you know. I met them through the a guy I was being managed with by at the time, and they came to Glastonbury actually. Mm -hmm. Those guys came to Glastonbury. They came to the Abbey. Funnily enough, I'd forgotten about that. But yeah, and they were they they are the manufacturer. They're called William and Paul Utz, and they manu they've got a company called Crystal Tones, and they man manufacture these high end sort of singing bowls. Mm. So yeah, and um, yeah, they just gave me the bowl. They gave it to me. They gave me seven of them. Pot. He, he, they, and we were in Glastonbury. I met them in Glastonbury. They were here 
going through the shops, mm -hmm. doing demonstrations of these bowls that they created, Paul, um, I'm sorry, William, in meditation, saw this way of that you can manufacture singing bowls in a different way. <laughs> he didn't even know what it was. And the guy, the guy Paul, who is his business partner, um, he he understood what that he understood from what William was telling him <laughs> the science of it because you know, they're very different types of people. Yeah. They're married, those two guys. And um, anyway, so between them, they started, you know, they started. Um, manufacturing these bowls <laughs> and I remember taking this this bowl to a, a recording studio this is I don't know 15 years ago and at that point in recording studios when things were recorded you see everything on computer screens now and you yeah. get these spiky lines like that yeah. just like of sound mm -hmm. that represents recorded this singing bowl and it was just pure waves mm. it was just pure colour rather than these spiky lines yeah. the guy had, had never seen anything like it in all the time he'd been recorded sound. So there's a really, really pure note coming out of that bowl, you know. And I've got seven of them. And, like, why the, you know, when they gave them to me, they'd given me a lift back from Bristol. It was four o'clock in the morning. And they went driving off down White Ladies Road where I lived then. And I waved them off and they went And then I heard the car break. And I heard, the, like, the sound of the... Um, you know when a car's reversing, there's that kind of, that's a really strange, they kind yeah. of, they reversed all the way, I don't know, about 50 to 100 yards back up while it's road, came to me. They had these bowls in a big kind of drum case. They came out the window and it says, Paul's just channeled it, we got to give you the bowls. <laughs> so they gave me the bowls and I just was left and they drove off. I mean, I didn't have a clue they'd just given me £10,000 worth of singing bowls. I took them home. I left them in a room mm. for about a few months, you know. I didn't do anything with them, I didn't know what to. Anyway, I've, I've written pieces with them, but the yeah. fact I have them and I'm able to use them when I'm doing these events mm. at the Abbey, it all feels strange, you know, that, not strange, but it's all... It feels right. It just feels right, you know. Yeah. Some, but something in them thought, give that mm. guy, they'd met me that day, give that guy <laughs> these bowls, you know. It's one of the many synchronicities that you seem to have yeah, yeah, experienced. And so, so when, you know, when I'm bringing that particular yeah. bowl up to your head, yeah. that's the story behind it. And that's yeah. this pure sound that you're getting from it. And that's why, I think, one of the reasons why. But you know, the other reason is your own talent and your own imagination and your own mm. gifts you know, that you brought out and which you experienced. It's not just mm. the bowl, of course. It's like it's, it's, it's a um, combination yeah. of both yeah. those things. But it's beautiful to hear it, you know, because <laughs> that's why you put these things on, and you, you know, you hope that they'll have, that people will get something from them. You really do, you know. You don't. Nobody's aloof enough to just not care about their audience. Well, if they are, then I'm sorry for them. In a way. <laughs> I still care a lot about what. Yeah. You know, I care that I want people to get something. Mm, want to come up and tell you afterwards what they. I'm not so much that. Them. Not so much that. No. No, but. Like I want them to have, I want them to have um, experienced something yeah. meaningful. You know, yeah. I put quite yeah. a lot of time into it. And yeah. I, <laughs> anyway, I loved what you just said. Is what I'm trying to say in a lo very long-winded way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so are you, are you writing a follow-up to your book? Are we going to hear more about what what will happen next? Yeah, I, I've I've done that. I've yeah. I've written it because I wrote yeah. my whole life. But actually, it's just. I mean, you, as you know, you've, you're an author yourself, so you know how much, 
you know, what it's like, the effort that gets into the editing and what yeah. it does to you. <laughs> you know, you're comp- I mean, I don't know about you. Once you've written it, you want it to just I was just like sail out into the world. Yeah. I, was, I was like in pieces on the floor once I'd finished that book. You know, I really was. It was just monumental. And so, and I, you know, and I had to cut it in. I realised when, when I got, to, there's no way, I, I wanted to release the whole thing. It's seven or 800 pages. That's what uh-huh. I wanted to do. But I just, and I was saying, no, everyone was telling me you can't do it. And I was saying, no, I'm going to do that. But I realised <laughs> that there's no way I, I've got to release it in two parts. Mm-hmm. But, and so I, 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 I concentrated on the first 300 or 400 pages and I got, them, I got it down to what it is now, mm-hmm. which is the singer that ends in 2003. And then, Obviously, there's a risk, but n- that other stuff's waiting there. Mm. It it needs that editing on it. But mm. also, I feel I actually feel there's something more to come. Yeah. That's more of actually of an intellectual. I I think in a way, like you asked me at the beginning. I think that I need to um, have a framework and a context for the things mm. that have happened to me, and actually be able to explain them more than just like this is what happened. And you mm. know, I want to have an intellectual. Mm. kind of like and that's what this second book's going to be about okay. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do that <laughs> but it's going to take some a different type of yeah. of like going about that I've never gone about things in any way like that before but something intuitively mm. says to me that I need a context now and I need to explain why these things happened and mm. I need to have and believe in something mm. you know and not just I mean, it's not like I'm sitting on the fence but it's easier to say I just had a feeling to go through this door and I ended up in Africa, man. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm not really putting myself on the line there, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not putting myself out there. Nobody can deny that. You can't criticise that because it's like, it's my experience, you know, it's the truth. Yeah. But yeah, I've realised that I've got to put it into context and that's what this second book will be and I don't know what that context really well, is yet. When, when the time <laughs> is right, I'm sure, I'm sure you yeah. will know exactly... <laughs> What it is you I hope to so. Do. I hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you for the chat today. It's been really fun. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. Indeed. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and you know, you brought out. I think your. I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'd have said that much with somebody else. You've got a sensitive nature, and you've allowed this conversation to flow. And yeah. not everyone can do that. If you know what I mean. You created an atmosphere that's allowed well, me. Thank to you. Just, <laughs> flow you know what I mean good I've good. done a lot of interviews in my life it's not always like that well I, I hope to feel more like a, a conversation than an interview so it did <laughs> good <laughs> well I hope everyone at home enjoys it as well so thank I, you yeah. everyone for listening thank you this has been a Glastonbury Abbey podcast Glastonbury Abbey is an independent charity you can support us by visiting the Abbey becoming a member or donating via our website, glastonburyabbey.com.